Well, we can have environmental competitions, having the greenest building in a city, having the greenest city in a, in a country, having the greenest country on the planet. That kind of mentality that, yeah, we can do this. And we're proud of it. We're proud that we're green here and, and make that the incentive to go ahead rather than waiting for governments to come down from the top and say, you're going to do this. This is a mandate. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. The world needs evidence-based public policy now more than ever. Making the right decisions should not be partisan politics. Please help spread the rational view by going to patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Together, we can make a better future. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. This episode is going to be a special treat, not only for listeners, but also for me. I'm going to be talking to a popular Canadian media icon and longtime host of CBC's Quirks and Quirks show, science journalist Bob McDonald. We'll be talking about his new book, The Future is Now, Solving the Climate Crisis with Today's Technologies. In the book, Bob brings an upbeat, we-can-do-it message to a world in need of hope. If you like what you're hearing, please press like on your podcast app. Feel free to share it with your friends. And if you'd like to come chat with me on our Facebook group, The Rational View, I'd love to hear from you. Bob McDonald has been the host of CBC Radio's Quirks and Quarks for over 30 years. He's a regular science commentator on CBC News and a science correspondent for CBC TV's The National. His previous book, Measuring the Earth with a Stick, was shortlisted for the Canadian Science Writers Association Book Award. He's been honoured with the 2001 Michael Smith Award for Science Promotion from the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada, the 2002 Sanford Fleming Medal from the Royal Canadian Institute, and the 2005 McNeil Medal for the Public Awareness of Science from the Royal Society of Canada. In 2011, he was made an Officer of the Order of Canada. His recent book, The Future is Now, Solving the Climate Crisis with Today's Technologies, is a national bestseller. Bob McDonald, welcome to The Rational View. Oh, thank you very much, Al. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate you coming to visit us here. In addition to this extensive list of honours in your bio, I think the most impressive is that you've also had an asteroid named after you. <laughs> Could you tell me yeah. about that? I mean, what do you know about this asteroid? Well, uh, it's not going to hit the Earth, okay? It's not, <laughs> it's not a doomsday asteroid. That's first of all. Uh, it's somewhere out between Mars and Jupiter, and it was discovered by a Canadian astronomer whom I also know here in Victoria, David Balaam. Now, David okay. has discovered many asteroids because he does deep sky astronomy, where he uses big telescopes and long exposures, and asteroids are actually a nuisance because they go across the frame and make streaks. But whenever that happens, uh, he'll if it's a new one that hasn't been found before, he gets to name it. Um, wow. Unlike comets, he can't name it after himself, so he names it after friends, and he, he calls it "rocking his friends." So <laughs> I was actually uh, I was actually on a sailing trip. I was uh, on my sailboat sailing around Vancouver Island, and I was out of touch uh, communication for quite a while until I came into a port, and then I just hooked in to catch up on emails, and there was a message from David saying, "Hey, I've, I've named an asteroid after you." And I'm, Holy smokes, that's, that's <laughs> incredible. And uh, it's it's a deep, deep honor because it's a, you know, that 
the club is uh, goes back a long way. Astronomical mm-hmm. objects have been mm-hmm. named after famous people like Galileo, uh, Copernicus, Aristarchus. Sure, all these sure, guys. yeah. So it's you know, uh, it's 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 really deep honor. Do you know how big it is, or what it's made of, or anything? about Yeah, it? it's it's only about a kilometer across, so it's about the size. If you slice the peak off a mountain, uh, that's about what it's like. And it's uh, as far as I know. Um, a fairly regular stony asteroid. So uh, it's it's one of millions that are out there. There's a whole belt of asteroids between Mars and Jupiter that did not become a planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of the leftover debris. You know, if you make a you make a cake, <laughs> after you make it, there's all this stuff on the table left over. So when the solar system was being made, a lot of stuff got packed into planets, but there was still debris, and that's what the asteroids are and comets. Cool. So. Uh, I must say, I love your work on Quirks and Quirks. It's a great show. I, I love you. the way you can talk to researchers and ask the right questions that really get to the heart of complex <laughs> issues. And I try to do similar things on, on, on the podcast here. Do you have any secrets you could share for, for you know, how, how do you do it? Well, there's two things. One, I have a lot of help. I have very talented producers, and they do all the heavy lifting. They choose the stories that are going to be on the show each week. They find the scientists, and we always go for the the lead author on a study. And they're very dialed into what's out there. They they get all the embargoed releases from the scientific journals. Uh, They get Mm. stuff from press releases from universities and institutions. And we call the lead scientists up. They talk to them on the phone ahead of time to make sure that they know how to speak and focus (laughs) the story. They gather the research information for me, which I have to go through so that I understand the story. And then we work together on the questions of what we're going to ask. And it's all about storytelling. You know, you, hmm. you, stories have have a location, they have characters, they have action, maybe a little tension, what's going on. So we sculpt it like a story. And, um, and then before the interview, we have a little chat and go over those questions that I'm going to ask so that I actually know the answer to all the questions I'm asking. Hmm. So my, my secret <laughs> is to listen. That's really my job. I have to listen. So I'll ask the question and make sure that I'm getting that answer from the scientists. And if mm. I'm not, if either they're uh, they're not complete or if they get caught up in all the jargon or if they mm-hmm. wander mm-hmm. off somewhere, i got to bring them back. And I've developed uh, what's kind of become a signature statement where I say, let me see if I got this right. <laughs> and that's me thinking on the spot because I, I want to get the interview back in line and bring the audience into it. So I'll try to sum up what they just said in one sentence, mm-hmm. usually with an analogy, and say, so is it uh, this thing around Jupiter, is it like a donut? And they'll right, say, right. yeah, except it's really big, you know, <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and it's electrically charged <laughs> or something like that, and to, just mm-hmm. to get it going. And then we move on to the next phase of the story. And I actually had a scientist tell me once when I was at one of our, our universities, and he'd been on the show a couple of times, he said, you know, in our lab, when someone's on your show, we try to get through an interview without you saying, let me see if I got this right, <laughs> because, because that means we failed. So that's really my job is is listening, understanding the story first, and then listening for you know a good storyteller to, to try to make them the storyteller. It's not about me. It's, it's their story, and I'm trying to make sure that they tell their story well. Yeah, that makes it. It makes the topic very approachable. I know I sometimes fall into the trap of being too technical and need to get back to the basics so that you can appeal to a wider audience. That's very helpful. Absolutely, because we're not handing out university degrees here. You know, we're informing the public. And it's, hey, this is interesting stuff. I don't expect you to remember all of it, but I'd like you to be interested in it. And here's why it's Mm -hmm. interesting. And that's, that's really our job. 
So I'd, I'd like to talk about your, your book, uh, The Future Is Now. Uh, on The Rational View, we focused a lot on the energy transition and climate change. We know that burning fossil fuels has changed the, earth at, the Earth's atmosphere, such that it's trapping more heat, leading to a significant uptick in the global average temperature and changing the climate. Most of the messages we hear in the media have been focused on the potential disastrous impacts of sudden climate change and all the bad things that might happen. And, I, you know, this negative focus is probably meant to scare people into action. Your book, The Future Is Now, takes a different tack. It provides a, a much more upbeat message of hope, I think. Why, why did you choose to go that direction? Well, because I was getting depressed with all that bad news. And I've been reporting on that bad news for a very long time. In fact, my first job at the CBC was to do a documentary, a one-hour documentary on climate change in 1977. 1977. Wow. That was before <laughs> your beard went gray <laughs> and when my hair was black. Right? Yes. Yes. 1977. And back then, there was a debate mm. in the scientific community about which way the climate was going to go. Because on one side, you had geologists who look way back in deep time. And they said, you know, we've had five ice ages. And between the ice ages are these warm periods that last about 10,000 years each. And we're in one of those right now. But it's been 12,000 years since the last ice age. So we're overdue if that cycle continues. Mm. It should be getting mm -hmm. colder. But then the climate scientists were coming in and saying, yeah, but now we have this new, new game in town, greenhouse gases. They're going to override that. So that was back in 1977. And I've been watching ever since then the predictions of those climate scientists come true. And mm -hmm. as you mentioned, you know, the, the, the climate's gone up. We have wildfires. We have droughts. We have hurricanes getting stronger. We've lose, lost ice in the Arctic and all of this stuff. And it's all come true. And in fact, it's come true faster than they predicted. And I was getting down about it because we're not acting on their warnings. They've been waving this red flag for so long. So I thought, OK, we spent all this time pointing at the problem. What are the solutions? And I was delighted when I did the research for my book to find out that all the solutions we need to go green are already there. There are wow. no new inventions needed. We know how to capture the energy of the sun, the wind, geothermal. Energy literally grows on trees, if you want to take it from that. It, it, it comes in the tides, on waves, everywhere. And, um, and we know how to store energy when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. So I just decided to put all that together in my book to give you an update on where we are with all of those technologies. And the message is, let's get on with it. We know how to do this. Let's get on with it. Indeed. And, and uh, that's definitely a, a great uh, contrast to what most of the messages, I mean, people are still fighting this, this rear guard, I think, against climate denial and trying to, you know, convince people that bad things are going to happen and we need to act. So it's nice. We need to focus both on the, the motivation part and the solutions. And I think as mm -hmm. it's been given short shrift. So this is, this is yes. a great timing, I think. Oh, yeah. I'm not minimizing the problem at all. You know, we need we need to think about that. And we have a, a countdown clock, you know, as we're reaching tipping points in the climate. But we can also move ahead. And it is happening. You know, you're seeing more electric cars on the road. You're seeing more solar farms. You're seeing more solar panels on people's houses. Uh, people taking, you know, we've got e-bikes now. So people are on bicycles more because they're easier to ride, leaving the cars at home. So the transition is happening. And it's, it's really... Um, I, I like to think of it as an evolution rather than a revolution mm -hmm. um, because evolution is when you take what you have and you just make it better over time. It just gets better. So we'll still have cars, but there'll be something different under the hood turning the wheels. It'll be electric, a fuel cell or a battery or whatever instead of a combustion engine. 
Revolution is where you have two sides that disagree with each other and don't like each other. And they, there's conflict and both sides mm -hmm. just dig mm -hmm. in. And that's why I'm against making an enemy out of the oil companies. You know, people call it the evil oil empire. And then on the right, other side, right. you got the green tree huggers, you know, but don't do that. And in fact, we're not going to, we're not going to abandon oil because oil is incredibly convenient. It's, it's hugely energy dense. It has so much energy in such a small space. That's why we're addicted to it. It's convenient. You can carry it around in a, in a can. It stores. Mm -hmm. You can use it when you want. And, and it's, it's plentiful. But, you know, it's got this thing. So maybe there are other ways to get energy out of oil besides just lighting a match and burning it, which is what we've been doing for the last 150 years. We can get hydrogen out of it. That's one thing. Or we can leave the oil in the ground and just take the hydrogen out. There's technology to do that. And then go hmm. to a hydrogen economy, or at least partially. So these are, these are things we can do. And it would be in the best interest of the energy companies, the oil companies, to think of themselves as energy companies to supply us, to, to, to fund hydrogen research and hydrogen development, to, to invest in solar so they can provide us energy in other forms rather than the way they've been doing in the past. Yeah, I mean, oil is such a such an important material. You know, it's the basis of all of our chemical industry, of mm -hmm. our textiles, plastics. Yep. I think future generations are going to swear at us for burning it <laughs> when they try to go find it and yeah. it's not there. And yeah, and burning it is one of the worst things you can do. You know, when you burn it, you got the, we call them hydrocarbons because hydrocarbons are long chains of carbon atoms with hydrogen stuck to them. I think of it like a Christmas tree string. When you mm -hmm. plug the Christmas tree lights in, it's the bulbs that come on. The cord just sits there, right? So the carbon is the cord, and the hydrogen are the bulbs. So when you burn a hydrocarbon, it's the hydrogen coming off and giving you all that energy, but the carbon stays behind. So mm. it's either soot, like coming out of a diesel truck or a, a coal-fired generating station, or it combines with something else. Since it lost its hydrogen, it wants to bind with something. Oh, how about oxygen? Okay, carbon dioxide. And if there's yeah. sulfur in there, you get sulfur dioxide or nitrous oxide, all these things. So that's the problem. It's the leftovers because we're just burning it. So like I say, if you can just take the carbon out and leave the and capture, take the hydrogen out and capture the carbon, now we're talking. Now we're talking clean. So that's that's the future sure sure yeah so i mean the ipcc has put out some dire warnings about the timeline we need to hit to decarbonize our economies our energy systems and it's a daunting task if you if you've looked at it in any sort of detail now you believe we can do this with today's technologies yet the scale of the infrastructure needed to displace fossil fuel burning as the source of all of our industrial capacity is immense how do you see our energy ecosystem evolving to meet that challenge? Well, I see it as um, a, a conglomeration of different energy sources. It's not going to be like we are now where we're depending on a few to, to provide many different things. So some areas are better for solar than others. Some areas are better for wind than others. So your energy is going to come from many different sources, including your own home. Then there's energy efficiency, how we, we use energy. We, we waste a lot right now so we can we can improve our efficiency uh, both in in homes and buildings and in the design of our cities so that we don't need cars so much we have more public transit that's safe and fast and mm -hmm. reliable and yes it is it is a, a big project but we got an example of how to do that during the covid pandemic i i think it's remarkable what we did during that time there were four elements came together first of all we had an invisible threat to humanity that was floating through the air and killing people by the thousands. Actually, they, it, by the end, it was in the millions. 
Mm-hmm. So first element, science came in and identified the virus. The Chinese scientists, once they got it, they sequenced its genome, its genetic uh, composition, and they sent that out to the world. They said, here it is. And there was an enormous international effort in the States and here in Canada and Europe to figure out how this thing works, how it infects your lungs, how it kills. Two, industry came in and said, yep, we can make vaccines for that by the millions. Three, government came in and said, we'll support the industry and we'll support people who have lost their jobs. And we're going to tell everybody, stay home for a while, change your behavior, stay home for a while because it's in the air, wear masks, social distance, all that. Three, Mm -hmm. the public, or four, the public, we all bought into it. We did it. Now, there were deniers, just like there are in climate change. There were deniers putting up misinformation and all that. But most of all, most of us did it. And we beat this thing in two years. That was astounding that we did that, that, that we, we got this all together. It's still there. We still have to deal with it. You still got to get your vaccine and all that. But we, we flattened the curve. Remember how they were telling us we had to flatten the curve? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, climate change is a curve we need to flatten. And the four elements have not come together. The science, yes, they've been telling us since the 70s. Industry, yeah, they're ready with technology. Governments, well, they talk about it and they've done some things, but we've had, what, 26, 27 of these United Nations conferences where governments get together and say, yeah, we're going to do something. But the bottom line is our emissions are still going up. It's not enough. And for the public, Well, the public's confused because there's been a very effective campaign of climate denial, misinformation, disinformation. So people are still uncertain, thinking that, Mm. oh, it's too expensive. It's going to break the economy. So we got to get that that fourth element in there. But if we can do that and and do it the way we we dealt with COVID, I I believe we can we can move ahead. But we need that motivation to move ahead and get over the fear that that is going to going to break the economy. And one statistic Mm. I found out while doing the book that scared me. It scared me. It's unbelievable. Um, they figured during COVID about five and a half million people do- lost their lives, which is horrible. I mean, that's, that's terrible. During those two years, every year, every year, seven to eight million people die from the effects of burning fossil fuels, mostly from the effects of air pollution. Seven to eight million people a year. And we just let that go. So in other words, twice as many people died from fossil fuels as died from COVID during the same time. And we don't mm-hmm. talk about that. So the, the need, question, it's not just, it's not just a climate issue. It's a human health issue. It's a, it's like, let's get on with it. Let's move it. The question is the motivation, right? I mean, you know, I think this is why you get so many doom and gloom messages because people are trying to motivate you with fear, right? This is, this is a horrible mm-hmm. thing. People right. are dying. We need to get the fear. But yeah. I, I think a lot of people are, are, are catatonic because the pathway isn't been clearly spelled out for them. Like, what do I do? I'm afraid, I, but I can't I, do anything. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And that's why we need better communication uh, from journalists like me to point to these solutions and say, Here how, here's how it go, goes. And there are uh, a number of different pathways to do that. I believe the change is going to come from the ground up. Everyone I have talked to who has put solar panels on their home loves it. They say, I've got more electricity than I know what to do with. And there's there's a phenomenon called the neighborhood effect, where you get one person does that on their home. And then they tell their neighbors, you know, my electricity bill has gone almost to zero. <laughs> and I'm, I've got an electric car that I charge with my house. So I'm driving for free now. And then the neighbor says, holy smokes, I want that. So then they get it. Then the next thing you know, the whole neighborhood has solar panel because it just went by word of mouth. It's a good idea. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it from an economic point of view, well, people who 
adopt green technology usually get a payback within five years or so. The upfront cost might look high, but then when you look at it long term, you're getting your payback. People who are providing green energy are providing jobs and income. So it's a win-win situation. And the green sector is one of the fastest growing sectors of the economy. So that's the kind of information we need to get out. This is a good idea. It's a good idea. Not just because it saves the environment, because it's going to save you money. Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, in the in the solutions department, I think many people in the environmental movement have come out strongly against technological solutions to the problems of the environment. There's, there's this degrowth movement that want to upend our, they don't want solutions that allow us to maintain our lifestyles in a lot of cases. I think there, there's a bit of a schism between the eco-modernists and the degrowthers. Do we, do we need to upend our, our economic system to save the planet or, or, you know, are we are we destined for revolution? Your your book is saying no. We need to go full in on the technology. Well, technology is only one element. I mean, it's it's also a, an issue of consumption. Sure, we need to cut down on our consumption. But uh, I gave a talk to a group of investors recently, a whole conference on investors talking about my book, and they got it. They they got mm -hmm. it that it's a good investment to move towards green technology, and uh, it it makes them look good. It makes whoever does it. You know, it's just pride. Hey, look, we've got the greenest building in the city. Make it a competition. And um, so their business looks good doing that. And we don't we can't go back to the trees and the caves. That's that's just not going to happen. We're a technological society and we've evolved other technology, but we haven't done it with energy. I mean, look, look at my phone. When I was a kid and when your beard was black, the phone <laughs> sat on a table and it was attached to the wall. Right. And all it did was talk. Mm -hmm. Alexander Graham Bell would roll over in his grave if he could see what a smartphone can do today. We, 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 you, you can talk to anyone in the world video-wise. You can talk to satellites. It's unbelievable. So there's a technology that improved and evolved to get better that did not come about from a government mandate. It didn't come about because we had a crisis in human communication. It was a good product that everybody liked, and it changed the way we communicate. Okay, mm -hmm. we did it with phones. We've done it with music. Again, going back, um, like, what was it, 120 years ago or something, the only way you could hear music was to be in the same room with the musician. You could hear live. Then Thomas Edison developed uh, a thing called the wax cylinder. It was these, these cylinders that right. you could put a needle on it. You got a couple of minutes of music out of that. Then the cylinder turned into a disc. The disc turned into reel-to-reel uh, -reel tape. Reel-reel tape went to cassettes. Cassettes went to eight tracks that you put in your car. Then we went to CDs. Then we went to iPods. Now all the music in the world is on your phone and you're doing it through noise canceling headsets. So the technology evolved, but it's still just listening to music. It's still just mm -hmm. listening to music. So we haven't done that with energy because <laughs> there's a whole lot of money to be made in the, in the infrastructure that's already there. And there's reluctance to change when you've got a golden egg. So it's, it's evolution. Let's, let's evolve our energy technology the way we've evolved other technology and embrace that. Evolution, not revolution. That's what I believe in. Sure. Yeah. No, and I, I agree completely. And it's something that I've, you know, stressed on, on this show. You recently gave a video lecture that I saw, uh, to the Climate Action for Lifelong Learners group. And you described some of the technologies we're going to need to deploy on a massive scale. And in contrast to some popularizers, you had very positive things to say about nuclear fission and SMRs as a low carbon energy source. 
And this is obviously a very polarizing message in the environmental movement. I, I respect the courage it takes to espouse a reason and rational viewpoint on such a polarizing issue. From my research on this issue, I found that nuclear energy is often mischaracterized in the media. I think we need it as a base load, uh, always on source of energy. You know, I've worked to try to save the Pickering nuclear plant, which has been given a reprieve. So, you know, I'm very happy about that in Canada, how we've kind of turned the boat around. We're starting to think that maybe this is something that's going to be useful. Why do you think there's so much controversy amongst environmentalists to, to this technology? Well, the, the, one of the scientists in my book admits that the nuclear industry has done a very bad job of explaining how the technology actually works and mm -hmm. what goes on. And the other problem is that when it goes bad, it goes very bad. Uh, it's like you know, owning a pit bull. The dog might be like nice most of the time, but when it bites, the bite is really bad. Um, we need better understanding. And the new approach to technology is different from the past. You know, Pickering is a gigantic, gigantic facility that costs billions of dollars to build, billions to operate. The new approach is to go small with little reactors that are about the size of an office desk that are made in a factory. So they all come under one roof and they're put underground there. And, mm. and one of them can run a small town. And these would be ideal for our northern communities that are currently running yes. on diesel generators. So they're underground. You don't touch them. They can't melt down because the fuel in some of them is already liquid and they can take very high temperatures and they have fail safe systems in them. So that's, that's the future is to go small nuclear. And this is modeled on the kind of small nuclear reactors that have been powering aircraft carriers, submarines and Russian icebreakers for decades. You know, you think about an aircraft carrier, you've got what, three or 4,000 people. It's a floating city with a nuclear reactor right in the middle of it. Yep. And they have an incredible safety record. And in terms of the information, you know, nuclear waste is really nasty stuff. No question. But we know where every gram of it is. And it's all under lock and key. And the volume mm -hmm. of it is incredibly small. Here in Canada, the total amount of nuclear waste that we have on site, on our reactors and where our reactors are, uh, I was told it's one hockey rink in area, one telephone pole high. That's it. Now, you compare that to the billions of tons of carbon that we blow into the atmosphere out of all the tailpipes and all the smokestacks around the world every year. So we can deal with that, that, yes, it's nasty stuff, but we can contain it. We can store it. We can keep it under control, under lock and key. So that's it's all about perspective. Every energy source has some impact on the environment. you got to look at that and you gotta got to trade it off compared to what we're doing now. And if you don't mind me rambling a bit, think about what goes into making, making a liter of gasoline. Yeah, a liter of gasoline. You know, we, we don't think about what it took to make that. But here in Canada, one route to get a, a liter of gasoline, you start out in northern Alberta or Saskatchewan drilling for natural gas, which takes energy to do and has emissions just the process itself. That natural gas is pumped to Fort McMurray, Alberta, where it is burned to heat up the sand to get the oil out of the oil sands. Then that oil mixed with chemicals to make it flow better is piped to Houston, Texas, thousands of kilometers. And all along the way are these big pumping stations to keep it moving that are run by natural gas, more emissions. When it gets to Houston, more natural gas is burned to heat the bitumen up to get crude oil, bulk oil, diesel, gasoline, 
plastic product, whatever, all the other things that we get out of gas, sure. that has to be shipped back up to Canada, distributed to all the gas stations before you even put it in your car. And then when you put it in your car, your car just blows it through the engine and out into the air. How many emissions were involved in that? And we know what that's doing. So that's the scale of what we're doing now. So when you talk about the difficulties of, of making the transition to a green, green, yeah, it's going to take energy, it's going to cost us, but compared to what we're doing now and the impact on the planet, it's minimal, including nuclear. So let's have these kinds of discussions. And it's part of the process to talk about this stuff, to make it open and make intelligent decisions rather than just argue about, no, it can't be done. Nuclear is bad, period. Yeah, if you yeah. become absolute like that, nothing happens. Mm -hmm. I, I like your, your point about the nuclear waste. We know exactly where all of it is and, you know, every gram of it. It's not a level playing field, and people don't realize that. It, there's there's a bit of a radiophobia thing, I think, that when the word nuclear happens, people shut off their brains. The you know, if if they say, Oh, nuclear is too expensive, what about the waste? Well, the fact is that it's expensive because we keep it and we store it. You know, if, if we were allowed to blow all the nuclear waste into the atmosphere and kill eight million people a year, it might be a lot cheaper. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> well, the other thing about nuclear is that it is incredibly dense. I talked about how dense oil is and, and fossil fuels. Nuclear is, is way, way more dense than that. You could run your house for a year on nuclear fuel pellets that are equal in size to four penlight batteries. Four penlight. That's how much energy is in nuclear. It's unbelievably dense. Wow. A, there was a funny story told to me by one of my colleagues at the CBC. Uh, this was years ago. He got invited to go to the North Pole on one of our Canadian icebreakers. Oh, cool. And they had to bash their way through the ice, you know, to get up there. And when they got to the North Pole, there was a Russian nuclear-powered icebreaker up there waiting for them. There's just a bit of territorial thing going on over who owns the oh, North Pole, okay. right? Well, the, the Russian breaker was gigantic compared to the, the Canadian one. And the Russian captain invited the Canadians over for dinner. And during dinner, uh, the Russian asked his his Canadian uh, counterpart, he said, the how many tons of diesel fuel you burned to get here? And the Canadian told him, you know, how many tons he had burned. And the Russian went, oh, I think we burn a few grams of uranium. And he was right. <laughs> yeah. He's right. A few grams of uranium got them to the North Pole where tons of diesel get, get the also. So nuclear has so many benefits for it. It's, it's dense. As you said, it's 24-7. It's carbon-free. And yep, it's got it's got this byproduct that we have to deal with, but that's manageable. So let's rethink nuclear. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you for that message. I want to look a little bit about other technologies. I know the IPCC uh, has produced representative pathways to stabilize the climate, uh, and some of these technologies include carbon capture and storage, uh, and. Currently, these technologies are, would be very expensive to scale to the sort of necessary levels we need to draw any significant carbon back out of the atmosphere. Uh, however, there are some relatively cheap ways to put a Band-Aid on global warming by, say, distributing aerosols in the stratosphere, doing these, these uh, geoengineering methods to, to try to decrease the sun's energy. What do you think of these options? These are kind of more, you know, Band-Aids or, or, you know, yeah. What do you think? Yeah, they're, they're, they're called, they're, they're called end of pipe solutions. So you're not getting to the source. 
you got a factory that's polluting a river and there's a pipe coming out that's dumping us. So you go to the end of the pipe and you try to capture the gunk that's coming out of the pipe rather than tell the factory, don't do that. <laughs> You'll clean up your act. Um, yeah. So carbon capture and storage, uh, it's not a new technology and Canada does that. The, the difficulty with it up to this point is that that carbon that's captured and pumped back underground is used for what's called enhanced oil recovery. They use the carbon dioxide to push more oil out of another well. You've got two wells. You put carbon down one and the oil comes out the other. So you're not gaining anything there because you're, you're going to be burning new oil with that. you got to put it down and keep it down. The problem is if you put it down and leave it there, there's no economic incentive to do that. You're not making money. You're just putting away your garbage. Whereas the you know, the recovery, you're getting a new product out of it. So that's that's why it's expensive. However, there are some projects in Canada um, that are doing that. But the oil companies like it because it allows them to get more oil out of the ground. The putting aerosols in the atmosphere, there's a Canadian who's uh, one of the world experts on that, David Keith at Harvard University, and okay. he's been looking at it. Yeah, it, <laughs> it, it would, again, take an enormous effort because the Earth's atmosphere is so large, it would take thousands of airplanes flying high up on the stratosphere to uh, to distribute this stuff. And in a way, it's we're playing with the Earth's atmosphere, and we're already doing that. You know, the, this climate change is an uncontrolled experiment where we've already manipulated the atmosphere, and some of the consequences of that are surprising us. And we're seeing these mm -hmm. feedback loops that happen with the ocean and, and all this stuff. So I don't think it's very wise to try another experiment in the atmosphere to do that. Let's get to the source. Let's get to the source. Um, an analogy I've thought about is an elevator where you've got a crowd of people in an elevator and one of them lights up a cigar and it really stinks the place up. Now, you're going to tell the person, put that out, but then you find out that the person smoking the cigar owns the company. So are you going <laughs> to tell them to put it out? They say, no, you lost your job. Well, you got a couple of solutions. You could try turning on a fan to try to pull the smoke out, or you could take some uh, air spray, some air freshener, spray that around to try to make it smell better. But you're not getting to the person because you're afraid of them because you might lose your job. So mm. we've got this big elephant in the room. That's threatening. You know, you take us down, we're going to take the economy with you kind of thing. Let's not, let's not do that. Let's negotiate. Mm. Let's work with, with the fossil fuel companies and say, let's all move together and, and cooperate. You, you talk about working with the oil companies, but these are the sort of things they propose or the end of pipe solutions. You know, when they're given mm. subsidies, they say, okay, I'm going to have these fans blow air over coolers and I'm going to pull the CO2 out this way and pump it down. And I've looked at the the early results that they've been publicizing from these things. And I think they're 3% efficient in terms of carbon dioxide captures. In other words, they, they burn a hundred tons of, of CO2 to <laughs> capture three tons or capture 103 tons from the yeah, air. <laughs> I know the numbers are unbelievable. You know, the, 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 uh, the amount that we're putting into the air gigatons, it's hard to get your head around that. And, uh, also how much energy we burn every year. Um, one of the things I, I talk about in my book is, uh, how many, how many joules of energy are in a barrel of oil? A joule is a unit of work, like how much work that can do. And it's, it's something like six billion, I think, which is hard to, to get your head around. But, uh, a, a mathematician did a calculation on the great pyramids of Egypt saying, okay, how many jewels did it take to build the pyramids? And it's, it's based on how many, how much the stones weigh and how high they had to be raised. 
And it okay. came out to some huge number. It was in the trillions of joules it took to build the pyramids. But then I said, well, how many barrels of oil would it take to build the pyramids? Turns out 400. One oil well can produce 400 well barrels of oil in one day. So one, one day of production from one well could build the pyramids. Wow. So when you add up how much energy we burn every year, all of us, we burn 2 million pyramids worth of oil every year. That's unbelievable. Or, or not just oil, but energy, overall energy. 2 million pyramids a year. It took the ancients 20 years to do it once. So our consumption wow. is enormous. It's enormous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and we, can, we can cut a lot of that down. I call it the invisible power plant by uh, reducing just how much we throw away. And uh, that, that's another whole element. And I think in in uranium that would be like a, about a coke can worth of the <laughs> of uranium <laughs> for a right. pyramid. <laughs> you got it. You got it. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's interesting. <laughs> so the the technologies are out there, um, and and I agree that I think we we have the solutions that we need to decarbonize. I mean, you you look at what's happened on on countries here and there, and I think France was was the one of the best examples, uh, in unintentionally decarbonized their full, their whole economy in the 1970s in response to the oil, um, shortages. And uh, when they put in place their MESMA plan, which was to, to transition to have domestic supply of, of nuclear f- fission. So they, mm-hmm. they basically went down to the, the lowest emitting country back in the, in the seventies and eighties. And they've maintained that ever since. So you, we have examples. Quebec uh, in, in Canada has extremely low emissions, but they have the, the, all of the hydro resources, of course, the hydroelectricity yep. and the dams. And, mm-hmm. and they, yes. they have, they're very green. Ontario is very green. We have you know, mm-hmm. 60% of our electricity is from nuclear fission. I think we have the tools. I, I agree completely yep. that we don't need to wait for a breakthrough. Yeah, and there's another example, uh, Iceland. Back in the 80s, the uh, the government decided that they were going to go to a hydrogen economy because they have to import all of their oil, so it's very expensive. But Iceland's a volcano, and they have a lot of geothermal energy there. In fact, they have these famous hot springs and, and erupting volcanoes, so the heat's very close to the surface. So they thought, okay, we've got geothermal energy. We can use geothermal to make hydrogen out of water, electrolysis, and we'll move to a hydrogen economy. And you know who helped them out with that? Shell oil. Royal hmm. Dutch Shell helped Iceland move to hydrogen because their philosophy was we're an energy company and we don't care if if people are going to a gas station that sells gasoline or hydrogen as long as it says Shell. What a brilliant idea. And the only reason Indeed. that that didn't take off was because of the financial crisis that happened and Iceland went into uh, an economic downfall. But it hmm. was a brilliant idea. And and Iceland has a very well-educated population. They all they all bought into it. They thought, yeah, that's great. The automotive companies were ready with fuel cell vehicles. Toyota makes one called the, the Mira. And okay. they so the, the automotive industry was ready. The, the distribution system was ready. The energy was there. And it was all the elements were, were there. And they, they probably still will. It's it's sort of in the background. But there's a, there's an example of an oil company thinking of, of itself as, as an energy company and helping a country get off oil. Go figure. Wow, that, that's great. A great story. Uh, I love that. One thing I want to go back to that you mentioned is, was the, on the, um, the aerosols. The, um, we, we have been 
having unintended consequences of our pollution legislation in terms of uh, the quality of fuel being burnt in airplanes and boats over, you know, over the past several decades, boats and airplanes had very sooty fuel. They effectively had, you know, low grade. There was sulfur in the coal that the the boats were bur- burning, and there was soot coming out of the jet engines. And this was actually having the unintended consequence of spreading all of these aerosols that people are thinking about for this this end of pipe solution to, to cut down solar. So it actually slowed global warming. And now that we are we've tightened our pollution regulations to get this soot out of the air because we know this soot is what's killing all the people from fossil fuel burning so now people aren't dying from the soot but now there's we no no longer are are doing this huge atmospheric engineering on on reflecting solar radiation back up into space so now we're getting hit by extreme uh, accelerating global warming i I don't know what the solution is but that 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 was my (laughs) thinking on the on the sulfates and that you know Let's put right, some yeah. safer aerosols <laughs> in there. But, but again, it's putting that into perspective. Again, it's putting it into perspective because, yeah, there, there's an effect there. When the, when the soot's gone, the sun can shine through and heat up the ocean. So maybe our storms will get stronger. But that's a small, small element in the overall picture of what's heating up the atmosphere. And so uh, it's better that we have clean air. Just like we did during COVID, you know, when we shut down, skies over Beijing and India suddenly turned blue because all that all that particular matter came out of yes. the, the atmosphere. So let's have clean, breathable air so we're not killing 8 million people a year with that and think about the other sources of warming and cut that down because the greenhouse effect of carbon dioxide, methane, and actually water vapor. Water vapor is also uh, uh, a greenhouse gas and, and cut down on on those and and the the effect of having having clear air it's it's um, it pales compared to those others so let's keep again keep things in perspective i really appreciate the positive message in your book and you know your work to to decrease polarization and to you know we can't uh, address this by sniping at each other we need to come together and and, and cut all of this nonsense about the enemy. Well, yeah. So it's a great yeah. message, I think. Yeah, because, uh, you know, otherwise it, it becomes a conflict and you see that nothing's happened. You get discouraged, so you don't try to, to change. And then you get depressed and you just want to go get drunk. And, uh, <laughs> well, we can go do that anyway. But, I, <laughs> but you know, that's, that's not Done. progressive. That's not progressive. <laughs> just pointing to the problem. I'm not interested in why not to do something. I'm interested in what we can do. Let's let's look at what we can do and how do we do that, even on a small scale, from the individual choosing to, to drive uh, a car or get on their bicycle uh, or put solar panels on their home, or if you live in a condo, talk to the strata board about can we put some solar panels on the roof or can we put some electric charging stations in the garage because uh, we're going to see more electric cars, all the way up to communities. How can we become a model city? Um, how can we be, you know, I, I love competitions. You know, we had that space, uh, the uh, the X Prize. It was a competition mm. to be the first private company to go into space. And they were offering something like, uh, what was it, $100 million, million dollars, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah it was some, $10 million. It was quite a lot. $10 million. It cost way more than that to get into space, but it was having the prize. It was winning the prize. And, and it, it was this competition that, that stimulated things. Well, we can have environmental competitions, having the greenest building in a city, having the, the greenest city in a, in a country, having the greenest country on the planet. 
and, and have that, that kind of mentality that, yeah, we can do this. And we're proud of it. We're proud that we're green here and, and make that the incentive to go ahead rather than waiting for governments to come down from the top and say, you're going to do this. This is a mandate. We know what happens when governments put out mandates. You get truckers in Ottawa. You get people <laughs> protesting in the street saying, don't infringe on my freedom. But if you say, mm -hmm. see, I, that's why I don't think the change is going to come from the top down. I think it's going to come from the bottom up. The politicians notice when people are doing things, when there's a change happening. I mean, you know, they're, they're noticing that more people are driving electric cars. People like electric cars, so the, the auto manufacturers are now all coming out with them, and the government's going, okay, let's build a battery plant. We'll support that. Great. That's what governments do. Governments should be putting in infrastructure for charging stations so you can drive across the country. That's where the government's role is, but not mandating from the top down we're going we're gonna to change, but supporting the change that does happen. And, yeah. and if we can believe that, that the change is, is there, and it's, it's so close, you know? Man, I was reporting on hydrogen technology in the 70s, and windmills have been around since you know, forever. Holland was built on windmills. We crossed oceans on the wind, and uh, it's, it's all there. It's all there. We just, it's always been in the background. Well, let's bring it up to the foreground. Yeah, no, I agree. And I've, you know, always uh, advocated for like a going towards that Star Trek future where we can, where we can all have, <laughs> you know, all the energy that we need at our fingertips. The solutions exist. We have solutions for clean power production and yeah. we just need to, I think we need to show a little bit as, as popularizers, as people doing outreach, we need to show a picture of what this could look like. And, you know, and there are competing visions out there. And so we need to show the clear pathways and maybe come together a little bit more on, on how to get there. Oh, well, sure. And the pathways, plural, are very clear. And if you go to other countries, you see how far ahead they are than Canada. Um, you know, um, Denmark is putting a lot of effort into wind technology, offshore wind. They've got these giant turbines now that are twice the height of the Peace Tower in Ottawa. They're almost the height of the Eiffel Tower. There's these giant things. One turn of the blade can run a house for two days. I mean, they're, they're putting out enormous amounts of power, but they're putting them offshore. Um, Scotland is investing a lot in tidal energy. Um, other countries, I was in Africa recently, just a few weeks ago, I was in Tanzania. And even there, a, a developing country where a lot of houses uh, barely have running water, but those that do have water, they store it on the roof of the building in a black container so that the sunlight heats it, so they have natural hot water. How mm. smart. I mean, it's, it's simple. Turn your water tank black and put it on the roof. Well, what a simple solution. And there are lots of simple solutions like that, that that can cut down on our energy consumption so that not everything is coming from the wall socket. And, and that's the kind of thinking that we need. And we're going to rethink where our energy comes from. We're going to think, rethink how we use energy to be more efficient about it. And that's, that's going to be the future. And, and, you know, there'll come a time when people will be looking back. Uh, I see museums with cars with combustion engines in them. And as for a, a daily demonstration for five minutes, they'll start up one of these cars <laughs> and people are sitting there going, God, listen to that thing. It's going, bah, 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 bah. <laughs> all the crap coming out. Look, it's got it. Smells. People drove those. Holy cow. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they'll, they'll be looking at the and big coal fire generating stations and wow, they actually built those things. That's amazing. So mm -hmm. we'll, we'll have an energy future that's going to be, uh, multi and, and another thing that um, that also 
I found interesting when doing the research for the book is that it's not going to be as obvious. It's not going to be as obvious. There's a lot of research in solar energy now. You think of solar panels as the big black things on the roof or these huge big farms that take up land. And the criticism mm-hmm. there is that mm-hmm. that land could be used for growing food. Well, there's another class of materials. They're called perovskites, and they can be made into very, very thin films. And so thin you can see through them. So they can be coatings on windows, solar windows. You think about all the windows that are in our downtown tall buildings, how much area that represents. That's huge. So you don't need to cover land, cover the sides of buildings. You can still see through them. You won't even know they're there. And they're talking about perovskite paint. (laughs) Paint your house and it's solar. (laughs) And the other idea I thought was really cool, paint the inside of your house with perovskite paint so that when you turn on your lights, the paint will absorb some of that light and turn it back into electricity. Recycling light. I love it. I love it. So (laughs) things like solar will be incorporated into the architecture of the building. You won't even know it's there. And but yet buildings will be be more efficient and and cutting down because they'll be incorporating the free energy that's all around us. It's a it's a quite a vision. I worry sometimes about the amount of manufacturing that we're going to need to put all these new technologies out. Um, You know, looking at some of the projections for these low density energy sources, you really need to put a lot of materials through the the mining and production production processing uh, grist mill, yep. as it were, to get it out. So I think there's there's got to be some optimum balance in terms of the, the mix of technologies that we use uh, to, to, you know, for, for an industrial society, we need a good energy return on investment. You know, the, the sure. idea of harvesting stray light from your light bulbs is, is great if you can do it with a very cheap solution, right? And, and perhaps Absolutely. paint is the way to do that. Yep. And there's, there's a thing called the valley of death where uh, a great idea in a laboratory looks like it's going to work. And then you try to scale it up and then economically it doesn't work. But we need that kind of innovative thinking. We need the young people in our universities and engineering schools to think about stuff like that and try them. I have a whole chapter called great idea, but, and it's about <laughs> these kooky ideas, <laughs> but they didn't work, but they were great ideas anyway. You know, so we need that, that kind of, of innovative thinking. So that, um, you know, so that we can move ahead. Yeah, yeah. And, and when it comes it. to things like, yeah, when it comes to things like manufacturing, one of the things I'm hearing now, which really bothers me, people talk about the mining of lithium and cobalt for batteries. Well, one, there's a lot of research into going finding, into finding other materials for batteries besides those. And two, the thing about batteries is that once you make it and it's in the car, that's it. There are no emissions from the car from that point on. And they're even trying to to make, they have a a what's called the million mile battery. And it's a battery that would last for, it won't go on one charge that far, but you can use it for a million miles, which is way beyond the lifetime of most cars. So the idea is that you get your electric car, you drive it until the wheels fall off or whatever, it wears out. And you take it back, the car's sent off for recycling, the battery's taken out and put it in another new car. So that one battery will run three or four new cars before it needs to be recycled. So that would cut down on the number of batteries that we need. So this is the kind of thinking that's going into how we manufacture our products to try to make them extend. Um, Whoever can come up with a battery that is lightweight, dense, and cheap 
<laughs> and can fill in a couple of minutes, like a tank of gasoline, mm-hmm. will probably win the Nobel Prize. <laughs> and they're going to get very rich. Yes, so there's yes. a huge amount of work going on in battery battery research right now. And that's exactly what we need is, is let's make this technology better. It's out there, but it can it can improve even, even more. And we really need to mandate uh, recycling of these new technologies that we're manufacturing sure. because otherwise and there's a lot of work the, going in, into that too you look at the the, yep. the mining requirements and the the waste storage requirements are you know when we go exponential on our on our energy we need to make sure that when the energy dies or you know in 20 years when all of the solar panels uh and need to be replaced that we have a way to recycle those materials and not you know remine all of them or put them into a landfill so that's yeah that's really good cool. i've i've heard a cool idea on batteries where instead of having like electrical recharge stations, what you have is battery swap stations. So you yeah. drive up and you, you pull the battery out and you put a charge battery in and then keep going. And then you don't have to wait for 10 minutes or whatever with the big lineup of yeah. cars behind that, you. That, that's a fabulous idea. I love that. But in order to make that work, all batteries would have to be standardized in the same way that we, we standardize CDs and, mm-hmm. and cassette tapes. They were all the same. Uh, they would play in all the all the different brands. So we would have to standardize the batteries in cars. At the moment, they're not. A, a Tesla battery is different from a Mustang battery and all that. But that's a fabulous idea. I love that. You know, VHS and beta. <laughs> <laughs> Only you and I know about that stuff. <laughs> so this has been great to talk to you, Bob. I really appreciate you coming on The Rational View to chat with us. Um, any Any last words you want to say about, you know, how we can motivate people to to get on board and 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 help with this transition yeah let's like i say let's not think about why not to do something let's think about what we can do and get on with doing it and uh, remember that this beautiful planet that we live on is the only one we can live on Uh, i'm i'm a space geek and i've been following the space program forever and i i've met people who've been to the moon and one of them, Buzz Aldrin, I, I took him sailing in Toronto, actually. He was in Toronto for a conference, and I was sitting oh, wow. beside him at a, at a dinner, and I, uh, I had a sailboat when I was living there. I said, hey, Buzz, would you like to go sailing tomorrow? And he said, sure. So I took him out. I took him sailing. But he That's said, awesome. Yeah. But he said, he said, you know, the moon is a really interesting place, but it's not a very nice place. And, and he's right. It, it'll kill you. The, the moon will kill you. And all the planets we know of, all of them in our solar system, will kill you. You have to wear a mm. spacesuit, including Mars. There's no oxygen on Mars. And we're up to over 5,000 planets now that we found going around other stars. We've yet to find another Earth. I'm sure they're out there. The galaxy is mm-hmm. very big, but when we do find one, it's going to be so far away we can't get to it. So this is yeah. it. We live in the Garden of Eden. We live in the Garden of Eden, and we're pissing in it. <laughs> so let's think about that this this is it and when uh, william shatner captain kirk was sent up into space by jeff bezos on his rocket just barely stuck his head above the atmosphere he came back in tears because yes. he saw the thinness of our atmosphere and he said all of us live in this tiny tiny little bubble this little membrane and that's that's our survival suit and to to think about that that we're we're on this closed system that let's let's take care of our home this is the most beautiful planet of all and it's the only one you can walk outside and not wear a spacesuit so let's uh let's just 
take care of our take care of our home. We can do it. We have the ability. We can do it. Yeah, I think I think it was Buzz who ter- coined the term "magnificent desolation" when, when yeah. talking about the moon. When he landed, when he first stepped out on the moon, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's right. I mean, a lot of people fantasize about inhabiting Mars or terraforming Mars, but it's a lot easier to terraform Terra because it actually is already there. That's <laughs> just, right. Just stop wrecking it. <laughs> yes. Tra- trashing the Earth is the last reason to go to Mars. <laughs> people will go there and they'll, they'll, they'll survive. They'll explore it. But it's like going to the South Pole. It's cold. It's uncomfortable. You have to protect yourself when you go outside. They'll probably have to live underground because the radiation, there's no ozone mm-hmm. layer there. And sure, mm-hmm. we could terraform Mars, but it's going to take hundreds of years to do that. And whatever it turns into will not be another Earth. It'll be Mars. And yeah, but meanwhile, you know, this one's bacon. Come on. Come on. Let's do both. Let's do both. Okay. Let's make Mars better and keep the earth the way it is. <laughs> I'm, I'm on board. So, so one last question for you. Um, science fiction or fantasy? Are oh, you a like Star both. Wars or Star Trek? <laughs> <laughs> I like both. We need both. You know, we need the realistic stuff. Uh, when I was a kid, I was inspired by Arthur C. Clarke, yes. uh, who was a science fiction writer taking you know, this could be possible in the future. And he wrote a wonderful story called Islands in the Sky. And it was about a kid my age who got a trip up to the space station that was under construction at the time. And uh, that was the story and it inspired me. Yeah, maybe one day I'll get to do that. Science fantasy, sure. We need the imagination of the science fiction writers. Uh, I was at one of the Voyager missions to Saturn back in the in the seventies. Uh, no, Saturn was nineteen eighty one, I think. But uh, we there we were at Saturn with uh, the Voyager, looking down on the rings and all these spectacular pictures. We were actually there, and I was in the press room, and there was a guy sitting beside me. I didn't know who he was at first, and uh, I said. I had my tape recorder. I said, would, would you like to give me a couple of comments? He said, sure. I said, so just tell me who you are. He said, I'm Larry Niven, famous science fiction writer. Wow. Went, Holy <laughs> God, I didn't know it was you. <laughs> and I said, so are the wheels spinning here? Or, uh, sorry, he said, you bet. He said, I love it. He said, I'm, I'm getting all kinds of great ideas from the science back to turn it into science fiction. And sure enough, uh, a couple of years later, a novel came out, and it was about some aliens hiding within the rings of Saturn, watching the spacecraft going by, saying, "Don't make, don't move, they'll see us. Don't move, they'll see us." <laughs> so, oh, wonderful. yeah, we need both. We need both. We need it. We need imagination of what's what could be possible, both realistically and what may be out there that's beyond our imagination. We need it all. Wow. Great, great message. Thank you so much for coming on The Rational View. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Al. It's a pleasure talking to you. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.